Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. All right, uh, John chapter 3 is where we're going to be tonight. John chapter 3. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Um, I have been uh, very fond of this church for a couple years now. I came here when I was serving as a youth uh, intern uh, in Lancaster. I came here a couple years to the youth rally and have wanted to come for a church service. I just haven't been able to come. So it was my first time. And so I'm really glad to be here. I appreciate the, the opportunity. Um, I, I heard that you guys get out by 8 o'clock Wednesday nights. And so as Henry VIII promised his sixth wife, I promise I will not keep you long. So you don't have to worry about that tonight. John chapter 3, as we're going to be, I'm going to read uh, my, my favorite verse in the Bible, really my theme verse in the Bible. If, if uh, out of all the people that have ever asked me to sign their Bible, the two or three people that have, uh, I've signed this verse and, and signed my name there. And this is my very favorite verse. I try to let this be the motto of my life. And so um, but we'll get there. We're going to get to verse number 30. Uh, but before that, I'd like to lay down some context. I really believe that verse number 30 is the simplest verse in all of the Bible, it's only seven uh, words long. I promise you have it memorized by the end of the night. And John chapter 3, of course, is a wonderful chapter. Uh, of course, we got John 3.16 in this chapter. Uh, but I believe at the end of the chapter, we have this great passage. And uh, we'll get into this tonight. We're going to start in verse number 25. Start in verse number 25. It says, And there arose a question between some of John's disciples. And of course, this is John the Baptist. I'm going to just kind of walk through this passage a little bit tonight. This is John the Baptist that, that is referring to. When you think about John the Baptist, uh, he was not someone who had really a luxurious ministry. He's not really, if, if, I, if I look at the Bible characters, uh, he's not really the guy that I would say I want to be like. He's not really the guy that I would say, man, I really want to have a ministry like his. He's not one of my favorite Bible characters. I don't know uh, if there are a lot of people that would say he is their favorite Bible character. But when we think of our favorite characters, a lot of times we think of David or maybe we think of Paul or Peter. Uh, John the Baptist was a little bit weird. Of course, he, he, he ate locusts and he ate honey and he lived out in the wilderness and he dressed in a loincloth. Uh, he was not the, the most popular type of a guy, and he didn't have a, a, a luxurious ministry. He had to do a job that nobody else would want to do. If you think about the ministry of John the Baptist, he had to serve really before Jesus' public ministry started. And really the end of his ministry was really the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And he never got to travel uh, with Jesus like the apostles did. He never got to see one church started. He never got to experience one miracle. Uh, he never got to travel with anybody like Paul got to travel with, uh, with, with, uh, with Timothy and with Luke and with other people. And uh, he was by himself a lot of the time. He was beheaded, obviously, when he was in prison. Uh, he did not have a luxurious life and he did not have a, a ministry that would say, man, I want to serve in the capacity that John the Baptist did, but he had a job that somebody had to do. Somebody had to do the dirty work behind the scenes, preparing the way for the most important person and the most important ministry that would ever take place in the history of the world. And of course, that is the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so he was really preparing the way and telling people, pointing people towards the Messiah that taketh away the sins of the world. And so some of his disciples are talking to him in verse 25. Then there arose a question among some of John's disciples, and the Jews about purifying, and they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, which are basically teacher, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, 
Behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. Basically saying, hey, your crowd is getting smaller, but that guy you keep talking about, that Jesus guy, his crowd is getting bigger. Everyone's coming to him to get baptized now instead of coming to you. Verse number 28, ye yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. Basically saying, I'm not trying to get a crowd to follow me. I'm trying to point people towards Christ. That is the purpose of my life and the purpose of my ministry. Verse number 29, he that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. And then he gives his life motto, he must increase, but I must decrease. A lot of times when I hear someone quote that verse, they leave out that word in the middle. They say, he must increase, I must decrease. A lot of times when uh, church have the, churches have this verse as their theme verse, they just take the first part of the verse, he must increase. And we forget about this all-important second part of that verse. John the Baptist was saying, Jesus must be glorified. Just as Paul said, a Christ shall be glorified in my body. But then he said, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And John the Baptist was saying, yes, Christ has got to be glorified. He must increase, but I must decrease. Sometimes in order for that first part of the sentence to happen, the second part of the sentence must also be true. In order for the, the way uh, to be prepared for Christ's ministry, John had to decrease. John had to become unpopular. His crowd had to get smaller. His head had to be chopped off. He, he, he was saying, I want Christ to be glorified. That is the only desire that I have. I want him to be lifted up. He must increase, but I must decrease. And if we're, if we're honest, and if I'm honest, I'd have to say that a lot of times when I think of the Christian life, I, I try to picture it the way I want it to be. I want it to be this elevator. Where I want Christ to be glorified. I want to glorify Christ. I want to live for him, but I want him to be glorified, but I want to go up with him. I want some of that glory. I want some of the credit. I want some of the, the, the things that may come along with popularity and with, uh, with being glorified. I, I want some of that too. But Jesus said, if any man come unto me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Ladies and gentlemen, the Christian life Sometimes I don't want it to be like this, but the Christian life is a teeter-totter. It's not an elevator. In order for one to go up, the other must go down. He must get bigger, but I must get smaller. He must increase, but I must decrease. And if we want Christ to be glorified, and I love how John the Baptist didn't say he should increase. He said, no, he must increase. If I'm going to be living on this earth, there's one thing that's got to be accomplished through my life. And that is the fact that Jesus has to be lifted up through my life. He has to be glorified. He must increase. And in order for that to happen, I must be willing to decrease. In order for Christ to increase in your life, I just want to point out three characteristics, three, three things that must happen, three events that must happen in order for Christ to increase. Number one, we must be willing to diminish. We must be willing to to diminish. Go back to verse number 26. 
And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. And John the Baptist was basically saying, hey, you're missing it. That was my point. I didn't want my crowd to keep getting bigger. I'm okay with it getting smaller. I'm okay with my crowd diminishing because my whole point is to point people to Christ, to point people to the Messiah, the Lamb, which take away the sins of the world. It's not about me. I'm okay with uh, my uh, popularity, my crowd diminishing. I think of my very favorite uh, missionary, Garen Patrick, no, I'm just kidding. My very favorite missionary, Adoniram Judson. I love to read about him. I, uh, there's a book that, that I've, uh, uh, that I, a little book that I have. I love that book because it's only 107 pages, and that's my favorite thing about it. It's probably the only book I've ever read twice in my life besides the Bible. And uh, I love that book, and, but uh, I love reading about Adoniram Judson. He was a missionary who had to decrease. Uh, he went through two wives, two, two wives passed away, not at the same time, but he, his first wife passed away, his second wife passed away, uh, many of his kids passed away. He didn't see one person saved uh, for six years. He was imprisoned. Uh, some accounts say that he was hung by his thumbs. He was tortured, almost killed in that prison. And we look at Burma, or what we call now Myanmar, we look at that country, we can still see remnants of Adnan Judson's ministry. We can look at that and say that, man, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people have been saved as a result of what God did, the foundation really that, that was laid through Adnan Judson. But in order for that to happen, there had to be a missionary who was willing to say, hey, I'm willing to stay up late every night and, and translate this translate the Bible into this uh, language that doesn't even have a dictionary. I'm willing to be in prison. I'm willing to, to, to be the first missionary uh, out of America. I'm willing to go and do what no one else has ever done. I'm willing to be in prison. I'm willing to, for my wife to have to keep going back to the States and going back to England because she keeps getting sick. I'm willing to decrease if that's what it takes for Christ to increase. Think of my life and, and, and I... Went to a good school, had good grades, went to a good college, had a partial scholarship for a good university. And, and I remember God called me to preach, and I went to Bible college. And if I'm honest, I'll have to admit that I went into Bible college with a lot of pride in my mind. I thought I, I, I was reluctant to, to uh, surrender to the preaching ministry. But it, since I'm going into the ministry, I might as well big, build a big name for myself. And I thought, man, I'm going to start a big church. I'm going to be an influential name in America, and I'm going to be invited to preach at different rallies and conferences throughout the country, and, and I'm going to be a big-name preacher. And years down the road, God said, no, I, I don't want you to use the ministry to build a big name for yourself, but instead, I want you to go to Africa, where no one's going to know who you are, and I want you to build a big name for me. And I had to come to the point where I realized I used to think that missions was not big enough for me. I have too much, too many, uh, I have so much uh, education, I've got uh, so much uh, ability to do other things, and man, I could be doing uh, so many bigger things with my life, and God helped me realize, hey, the biggest thing you could possibly do with your life is missions. The biggest thing you could possibly do with your life is say, hey, Lord, I'm going to give it to you, and you can do with it whatever you please. God has uh, called me to, the, to be a missionary, and I, I always tell people, uh, a lot of churches I go to, please don't ever feel sorry for me because I'm a missionary. 
I have the greatest privilege in all the world. I'm so excited to get to Africa. And yes, we're going to uh, live in a place where the electricity is on maybe half the day if we're, uh, if we're uh, lucky. Uh, there are people in the northern part of the country that uh, don't want us there. And uh, there's the biggest terrorist group in, in the whole continent lives in the northern part of Nigeria. And we're going to live in a place where we can't really go outside at night because it's dangerous. We're going to live in a place where uh, there's a lot of uh, threat to get malaria and other diseases. We're going to live in a place where we're going to be uh, half a world away from our family. We're only seeing them once every three years. But if, if I'm not going to have to decrease, then how is Christ going to be able to increase? If, if, it, if it means Christ increasing, then I'm willing to do some decrease. We must be willing to diminish, number one. Number two, we must understand who we really are. Man, if we could live our life, if we can start our day with a proper understanding of how big God is and how small we are, man, I wonder if God could use us in a greater way. Verse number 28, John the Baptist continuing to speak. He said, ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. It's basically saying, I, I'm not the big guy here. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. I'm just a servant serving in the, back, in, in, in the background. I'm basically the guy uh, pulling the curtain down so the show can continue going on. I don't need the credit. I'm nothing special. He said, I'm a voice just in the wilderness uh, preparing the way of the Lord. I'm nothing. I'm not even worthy of uh, untying his shoelaces. And John the Baptist understood who Jesus was, and he understood in light of who Jesus was, who he truly was as well. I like to study the life of, of Saul, not Saul in the New Testament, but Saul in the Old Testament, the very first king uh, of Israel. And I won't have you turn to the passage for sake of time, but, but basically Saul, we think of Saul and we think of him as this terrible king, and he really was. But when you look at the beginning of his reign, he really was a good king. His, his, his reign got off to a really good start. And he was anointed the very first king of the, of the, of the, the, the children of Israel. And, and he started having victories against other nations. And other nations began to think, man, this is a powerful uh, nation. There's something special about this, this nation of Israel. And, and, and uh, he started to think, man, I, 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 God, God is using me and, and I'm, a, I'm a great king. But it's interesting to, to realize where he was when God first called him to be the king because Samuel uh, came unto him. Samuel was the messenger of God and came, came unto Saul and said, hey, uh, God wants you to be the very first king of Israel. And he says, wait a second, I think you got, there's no way I'm the right guy. He said, I'm, the small, I'm from the smallest family, from the smallest tribe. There's no way I'm supposed to be the king. And then they came to anoint him, and he hid himself. He's nowhere to be found. He, he thought, there's no way I am the guy. I'm not special enough for that task. Then he became the king and started having victories and, and started getting this pride in himself. And he thought, man, I'm big enough to disobey God. I used to think I wasn't big enough to be the king, but now I think I'm, uh, after the victories I've had, I think I'm big enough where I can disobey God and I can get away with it. And long story short, he was given an assignment, and he partially obeyed the assignment. And Samuel had to come unto him, and he said, I, he said and Samuel said unto him, When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not, the, the, wast thou not made the, the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed thee king over Israel? He basically said, Saul, you've reached the point where you've ceased to be small in your own eyes. And once you reach that point, God can no longer use you. 
And God from that day rejected Saul as king. And he still had the position, but he didn't have God's presence. And he didn't have God's recognition as being his man. Once he reached the point where he thought, man, I'm something big. I'm something special. I'm no longer my little Saul, but I'm a great king who's big enough where I can disobey God. God said, man, I, I can't use you anymore. I think of uh, just the ministry of preaching. And I, I was so scared when I was called to preach. And uh, when I was, I believe, 19 years old and God called me to preach, I thought there's, there's no way. As a teenager, I was the shyest uh, kid, you pro- one of the shyest kids you ever meet. I remember one time uh, going up to my Sunday school teacher. I brought him a, a dry erase marker, uh, no, eraser. And so I went and brought that up to him, and I tried to say, hey, I got this for you, Mr. Sunday School Teacher. And uh, it was actually Brother Delaney who was pastoring in Long Beach now. Uh, but I remember I came up to him, and I tried to say, I got this for you. But all that came out was, uh, because I was so shy, I couldn't even get the words out. And, and, and there was a, a teenager who was just so shy, he couldn't speak in front of people. And the God said uh, a couple years later, I, I want you to come and speak in front of a whole bunch of people three times a week for 45 minutes. I was thinking, there's no way in the world I can do it. And I was trembling when I surrendered, but I surrendered to preach. And then, you know, years go by and you learn and you, you study and you, and you get better and, and you get practice. And in the Bible college, I remember just uh, uh, homiletics, the preaching class being my favorite class. And if, if I'm honest, I was, it was my favorite class, not because it was a great experience to be able to, to preach the word of God, because I wanted to hear the compliments afterwards. I wanted to hear people say, man, that was the best one I heard this, this semester. I remember sometimes God had to say, hey, remember when I called you to preach? How little you really understood you were? Maybe you need to go back to when you were 19 and you realize and you remembered and you recognized how small that you were. John the Baptist understood that there was nothing special about him. He was just trying to tell everybody else about someone who really was special. Number three, we must have a greater love for Christ than for ourselves. We must be willing to diminish. We must understand who we really are. We must have a greater love for Christ than for ourselves. Verse number 29. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom which standeth and heareth him rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore therefore is fulfilled. In a Jewish wedding, it was not the maid of honor that did a lot of the work behind the scene. It was the, the best man, or they, they, they call it the friend of the bridegroom, who, who made all the, the, the preparations and who sent out all the invitations and, and prepared the, the ceremony and all those things. He did all of the hard work behind the scenes, and once the wedding day came, he faded from view. No recognition was, uh, was there for him because it wasn't about him. But as soon as he sees the bridegroom and the, and the bride come in, his joy is fulfilled because he was more excited about their day than he was about himself. John the Baptist said, this is how I view Christ. This, therefore, my joy is fulfilled. Hey, as long as he's being glorified, that's all I need. That is what fulfills my joy. I love him more than I love myself. My favorite story in the Bible about someone loving Jesus is a story a very familiar story, it's a very similar story, it's told like this four times throughout the Gospels. It's told in Matthew 26, it's told in Mark 14, it's told in Luke 7, and it's also told in John chapter 12. Uh, John chapter 12 and, and Luke's account tell two different stories that, that take place during different times in Jesus' ministry, but the two accounts in Matthew and Mark tell the very same story of this lady who comes to Jesus and interrupts the feast 
and breaks this box, this alabaster box, basically a ceramic vial in our modern vernacular, and pours this oil on Jesus' head. And in a feast back in those days, it, it was a big deal. And, and, you know, it took a long time to prepare the, the animal. You didn't go to the store and, you know, go to the meat section. You went outside and killed the animal and prepared it and all those things. It took hours and hours to prepare a meal. And they're sitting at the meal and they're about to eat. The food is hot. And in comes this woman. And she's basically saying, hey, I just want to interrupt you guys because I got this box and I just want to break it. And I just want to pour some oil on Jesus' head. Uh, before, so you can, you guys can wait. Let your food get. And, and basically, Jesus did not say, "Hey, lady, I appreciate what you're doing, but can you can you come back later?" Jesus basically said, "Hey, this food can get cold. The fellowship can wait because what she is about to do is more important than anything else going on in this room. Because she was about to pour out her reputation. She was abort, about to pour out her dignity. She was about to pour out." her substance, a box that was valued at 300 pence, basically 300 uh, a day's worth, a year, basically a whole uh, year's worth of salary. We don't know how she inherited that box, if, she, if it was a family heirloom or if she worked for several years to purchase that. We know that women did not have high-paying jobs back then. So this was something that was very precious, some, probably the biggest thing, maybe the only thing of value that she had, and she was willing to pour it all out for Jesus just in a matter of moments. But we know that that event took place just a few days before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And, so, and this lady knew what was going on, and she knew this is my last chance to be face-to-face -face with Jesus Christ before he dies. This is my last chance to show him that I love him. And I probably don't have much, but I do have something. And I have this box, and it's worth a lot of money. And I can use it in preparation for his burial. He's about to be laid in the grave. I can pour some, some, some good uh, smelling uh, uh, um, ointment on him in preparation for that. And, and it's a common act, act of hospitality. People would pour uh, some drops on you if you came to, uh, as an honored guest. But usually you'd pour about two or three drops. This lady, she got the box. She poured the whole thing. And most likely all that, that spikenard, that ointment got uh, on his, she, she poured on his head, most likely it dripped down his face and onto his neck and onto his chest, probably seeped through his tunic and, and seeped into his pores. He died on the cross just three or four days later. That was some strong smelling ointment and she doused him with it, most likely when he was on that cross. And by the way, the Roman soldiers would position your body in such a way that your lungs were stretched out. In order for you to take a breath and keep on living, you had to use all the strength you had in your legs to lift your body up so your, le your lungs would become unstretched and you could inhale. And I would imagine that every time that Jesus took a breath, he smelt something that reminded him of the fact that, hey, I'm dying for the sins of the world, but at least there's somebody, at least there's somebody that loves me back. I wonder if we love Jesus more than we love ourselves. If I had to ask myself that question, I guess the answer would be not a resounding yes, but an embarrassing sometimes. Sometimes I love Jesus more than myself, but a lot of times I wake up and I'm the first thing on my mind. I go to bed at, at night and I'm the last thing on my mind. A lot of times I love myself way more than I love my Savior. But I hope that we would decide I want to love Christ more than I love myself. I want to love Christ so much that I'm willing to decrease so that he can increase. Because really, if you think about it, 
he decreased so that we could increase. That's really the Christmas story. Uh, God uh, came down and, uh, into this, this earth and was born into this dusty, crummy, sin-filled earth and born into a poor family and, and born into uh, a tiny little city of about 500 people. Of course, we know the Bible says that he was wounded for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone his own way and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was brought as a land of the slaughter, as a sheep before his shears is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. The Bible says his visage was so marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. Basically, his face and his body were more brutally beaten than any man up to that point in history. Jesus Christ decreased so that we could increase and spend eternity heaven with him, something we would never deserve. And if he was willing to decrease so that we can increase, I think it's safe to say that the least we should be willing to do is decrease so that he can increase. Paul, uh, when he's writing the book of Romans, he spends about 11 chapters just really laying out the doctrine of salvation. He talks about uh, so many things about uh, our sin and what Jesus has done for us. And he just lays out so much wonderful, rich truth about Jesus' sacrifice for us. And then he gets into the practical part. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I beseech you, basically, I, I beg you by the mercies of God, because of everything I just explained, because of what Jesus has done for you, I beg you that you present your body is a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable, reasonable or logical or it makes sense service. The only proper and sensical uh, response to Christ's life given to us is our life given back to him. He was willing to decrease for us. We should be willing to decrease for him so that he could increase. One story and I'll be done. Muhammad Ali greatest boxer of all time, most people would say that. We think of athletes that were great and, and athletes that were full of themselves, and, and I think Muhammad Ali probably takes the cake. I mean, LeBron is pretty far up there, and, and some other players, you, know, you could make a case for Floyd Mayweather, but I think uh, Muhammad Ali probably takes the cake for being the most prideful athlete. He's always saying, I'm the greatest, and I'm the king of the world, and, and there was even a time when According to his uh, biographer, there was a time he was on an airplane and uh, there was a, a stewardess that said, hey, you've got to put your seatbelt on. And, and he said, uh, uh, Superman don't need no, no seatbelt. And she said, well, Superman don't need no airplane. But he was very prideful. He, he was full of himself and he lived for the glory. He lived for the limelight. And he certainly obviously had everything the world could offer. He had success uh, in, the, uh, in the public uh, view. In the, in the public scene, he had a tremendous success in his career. But at the, after his career, years after his career, Sports Illustrated reporter came to his house and, and interviewed him. And, and he, he took him to his gym and he kind of threw some jabs. Obviously, all that he was able to manage at, at his age and with his uh, deterioration of his body. And uh, he, he, he took him back to his house and showed him his barn. Out in the, in the barn behind his house, he had all these trophies and all these posters uh, with pictures of him holding his hands up and, and knocking someone out. And, and he noticed that all of these posters and all these trophies, all this memorabilia had cobwebs and pigeon droppings on them. 
Muhammad Ali walked through the hallway of that, of that barn. He started turning the posters so that they faced the wall instead of facing the hallway. And he walked outside of the barn and, and, and he said, he walked outside of the barn with just a, just a shamed look on his face. And the reporter said, what, what's going on? Why did you turn? Why are you letting all your, your trophies collect cobwebs and pigeon droppings? And why are you, you, you turning your, your posters to face the wall? And he looked back at him and he said, and I quote, I had the world, but it wasn't nothing. I think of Muhammad Ali, someone who had everything the world could offer. He lived for his increase. And at the end of his life, he died, or he lived for the praise of the world. But John the Baptist died with the praise of the Lord. It was prophesied before John was even born that he would be great in the eyes of the Lord. And right before he died, Jesus gave him the greatest, the greatest compliment anyone has ever received because Jesus Christ himself said he's the greatest man ever born of a woman. I look at John the Baptist and I think, man, that's not the kind of life that I want to live. That's not the kind of ministry that I want to serve in. But in the eyes of Jesus, that's what greatness is. When you're willing to say, like, I don't need anything. I don't need recognition. I don't need luxury. I don't, I don't, I don't need the kind of career, the path that I want. I don't need the, uh, all the, the recognition and accolades that I have desired. I don't need all of it. I'm willing to let all that diminish. I'm willing to let all that go away. I'm willing to decrease so that Jesus can increase. In the eyes of Jesus, that's what greatness really is. I hope that we would desire to be willing to decrease so that Christ could increase. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.